0: Whenever you meet someone for the first time, a stranger, there's usually an exchange of questions that occurs. We are getting to know each other. I'm getting to know you, uh, even as you are getting to know me. And many of us like this kind of thing. We enjoy uh, talking about ourselves, if we're honest. Uh, We like getting to know other people. And we like being known, up to a point. Uh, There are certain things that we'd rather not have known about us, aren't there? Our lives are like a giant theater. There's what happens out on the stage, and then there's what happens behind the scenes. There are those things that we want to uh, put out into the spotlight for others to see and celebrate, and there are those things we'd rather keep back behind the curtains, underneath the stage, outside of the spotlights. One of the very tricky things about uh, being known by others is that we have a hard time knowing ourselves. But... But even when we do know ourselves, we have a hard time being honest and further uh, being transparent with others about who we are. But Psalm 139 uh, teaches us that we are known fully, not by others, but by God. We are known by God and his knowledge of us shapes our identity. You are known by God. And David specifies three facets of God's knowledge of us in this psalm, that we are known uh, inside out, we are known everywhere, and we are known for all time. So we begin with the thought that we are known inside out, which the psalmist speaks of in verses one through six. The psalm begins with these penetrating words, "O Lord, you have searched me and known me. We are each known by God. We each could say along with David, Lord, you have searched me. You have known me. You might be wearing some kind of mask before other people, but there is no mask before God. The real you is fully known. The Hebrew word to know is, is, is a vivid word. It has a wide array of meanings throughout the Old Testament. It, it can be a very intimate kind of knowledge. It's the word to describe the sexual relationship between a husband and wife. So Genesis 4.1 says, Adam knew his wife and she conceived and bore Cain. But it can also be a knowledge that describes a, a circumstantial awareness of some facts barely connected to you. Uh, what determines the the meaning of it is the context in which it's used. So what does the context teach us about this knowledge of God in Psalm 139? It teaches us that God's knowledge of us is is an ingressive knowledge. It's a knowledge that enters into the very core of our being. It's it's more than intimate. It's exhaustive. Uh, There's no one else who knows you like this. Look at verse 2. David says... Lord, you know when I sit down and when I rise up. Well, other people know you like that, don't they? they? They know your comings and goings, the kind of activities that you're involved in. But then he goes on to say, you discern my thoughts from afar. God knows not just what we do, but also why we do it, and even what you're thinking as you're doing it. Uh, sometimes someone will say, I could tell what you were thinking. Uh, But God's knowledge of us is is not an educated guess based on years of knowing uh, the facial response of another person. His knowledge is absolute. It's from afar. It's not uh, an educated guess based on seeing the face, but it's an absolute knowledge. You discern my thoughts from afar. This is the doctrine of God's omniscience. God knows all things. Nothing can be hidden from his sight. And this applies to each one of us individually. All that can be known about you, God knows. You discern my thoughts from afar. Another example of God's knowledge of the the inner workings of our person is seen there in verse four, where David says, "'Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether.'" God knows future events, words that are yet to be spoken the words that are still inside of us, maybe uh, words of resentment that we've kept buried until some trigger releases a torrent of anger or or stinging sarcasm, those things that we we try to keep inside of us because they might not reflect well on us if they came out. We keep those thoughts. We keep those words uh, backstage, out of sight. Imagine yourself as a house. You know, in in each of our homes, we have rooms that we may be really proud of. Maybe there's a big window letting in lots of sunlight, and uh, our favorite artwork is hanging on the wall. You want people to come into that room. But then there are other rooms that we'd rather people not come into. You know, that's that's a, a workspace. It's kind of a mess in there. It's private. Don't go in there. And then there may be another room down the hall that you're not necessarily ashamed of. It's just that it brings up painful memories. and You don't want people to go in there either. In fact, you might not want to go in yourself. But God is intimately familiar with every room in the house. There's no detail that escapes his attention and his care. And so we ought to cultivate a sober awareness of God's presence, that he is in the house, he has access to every room, he knows us internally and completely, we would be wise then to meditate not so much on what others think of us, but on what God knows of us. You discern my thoughts from afar, before a word is on my tongue, you know it all together. Reflecting on this leads David to say in verse six, such knowledge, such knowledge, knowledge of such a kind. It's it's categorically different. It's it's wonderful, he says. It is high. I cannot attain it. While this knowledge is penetrating, which may be disturbing for some of us, David actually finds this knowledge very deeply comforting. It's a source of great pleasure to him to be known by God, to be known so closely. Why might this be comforting? Well, God knows him fully and yet loves him completely. God's knowledge is is not clinical and critical, but rather it's intimate, like how a father knows his children. I know my daughters, Olivia and Meredith. I know all their, their weaknesses or characteristic sins but I can't tell you how much I love them. It's wonderful to be known by God, the real you before the real God, no need for hiding. If God were merely justice, this knowledge would be damning to us. The whole sum of what can be known about any one of us doesn't really speak in our favor. There's there's a reason we each feel an impulse to wear a mask. We have things that Should be hidden. And and God would be just to bring punishment to us for sins, for those hidden evils in our hearts. But he is not merely just. He is also merciful. So merciful that he planned for Jesus Christ to absorb the consequences of our sin and our inner corruption so that we could be forgiven rather than condemned. This is the only way that God knowing us is not a threat to us, but rather a comfort to us. We can throw open the doors and invite him in. There's nothing to hide for those who have been forgiven. So in verses 1 through 6, David ponders the reality that God knows him inside out. And then in verses 7 through 12, David highlights the fact that we are known everywhere. So look again at verse 7. Where shall I go from your spirit or where shall I flee from your presence? If the first six verses remind us that God is omniscient, he knows all things, he has exhaustive knowledge, uh, then verse seven reminds us that God is omnipresent. God is everywhere present. David uses three images to describe the everywhere present God. First, he says that God is present from the heights of heaven to the depths of Sheol. Verse eight, if I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. Sheol just means a a deep grave or maybe even just a a pit. Um, So from the heights of heaven to the depths of the grave, uh, God is everywhere present. You think of Jonah who went down into the bottom of the ship, But God saw him there. And then he went down into the the belly of that fish far beneath the depths of the sea. But even there, when he cried out, God was present. God knew where he was. God heard him. There is nowhere you can be, no height of happiness or pit of suffering where God is not present with you. And then second, uh, God is present in the uttermost parts of the sea. Look at verse nine. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. This is a declaration of God's presence, but even more than that is a declaration of God's protection. In fact, his presence is his protection. To say God is with me is not only a very significant doctrinal statement, but it's also a, a great comfort in the face of threat. The uttermost part of the sea for the ancient mariner would have been the edge of the world the forsaken places, the the dangerous places. Perhaps this was David's own reflection as he read these words from the Lord in the book of Joshua. I will never leave you nor forsake you. Be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened. Do not be dismayed. Why? For the Lord, your God, is with you wherever you go. For the Lord's children, his presence is his protection. No one will be spared uh, the suffering that's inevitable in this life under the sun. But even there, we can say with David, your hand will lead me. Your right hand shall hold me. So from the height of heaven to the deepest grave, to the uttermost parts of the sea. And then thirdly, uh, God is present even in darkness. Darkness is as light to him. You see this in verse 11. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me be night. Even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. Well, in these words, is the psalmist suggesting that he is determined to cover himself with darkness, or is he afraid that the darkness will overtake him? Uh, Is he trying to hide from God in the darkness, or is he afraid of being left out in the darkness? I think he's afraid, but in either case, God's gaze is not limited to those places on which the sun casts its rays. In the dangerous places, the uttermost parts of the sea, in the darkest places, uh, God is present and he is protecting. So God, the the creator of all things, is is present. He is the everywhere present God. Uh, God is distinct from his creation. He's transcendent, majestic, far above. He is distinct, yet he is not distant. This is the great doctrine of God with us. In Sheol, the place of death. In the uttermost part of the sea, the place of danger. In the darkness, a place of despair. Uh, God is with us. And if there's any doubt in your mind about God's determination to be present with you in any of these places that you may find yourself, that doubt is removed as we encounter the person of Jesus Christ, whose very name is Emmanuel. God with us. In fact, in the Gospel of John, the the first chapter portrays the whole world as being covered in darkness. Just what David says here, the whole world is covered in darkness. And yet Jesus is the light who pierces into the darkness and dispels darkness. And he does this, especially through his death and resurrection. Through his death, he brings forgiveness from sin and the darkness that it brings. In his resurrection, he brings us into life. And so by relating to God through Jesus Christ, we are assured of always living in the light of God's presence, where we have forgiveness from sin, where we have hope beyond the grave. Jesus assures us, he confirms to us God's presence with us in any of these places that we may find ourselves. And so the psalmist is comforted in recalling that he is known inside out, and that he is known everywhere by the God who is with him. And then third in verses 13 through 18, we are known for all time. Read again uh, verses 13 through 16 with me. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. Here, David contemplates God's creative act. God is the one who brings human beings into existence. Uh, The science is spectacular, uh, confirming that there is God behind the science. Uh, A baby in the womb then can accurately be explained in two ways. One is sperm finds egg and a zygote is formed and cells multiply, internal organs develop and so on until the baby is, is ready to come out. Some of you women may be awaiting that moment right now. But there is another accurate way to explain that baby in the womb. You formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. The image of God is the work of God. Embryonic life is life that is intricately woven together by the creator. And you were known by God in the earliest facets of your formation, your physical and mental attributes, the things that we say are in your genes, uh, gender, ethnicity, intelligence, stamina, height. You know, that, that, those pieces of your identity are not accidental, but purposeful, ne- never to be despised, whether thinking of your own physical attributes or the, the attributes of another person, uh, because they are the work of, of God. Therefore, to despise or, or to deny the, the gender given to us or ethnicity or intelligence is to despise the work of God. Those elements of your identity were lovingly given to you. I will praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. That's not prideful. That's just simple praising God, the creator, for the amazing and wonderful work of his hands. And then having contemplated God's creative act, David says something that's really amazing. In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there were none of them when as yet there were none of them. Before they came to be, before God conceived David in the womb, God had conceived of David in his eternal plan. God says the same thing to the prophet Jeremiah. Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And a thousand years after David, Paul the apostle says of all God's children, God chose us to be in Christ before the foundation of the world. This, this is God's foreknowledge, his knowledge ahead of the fact. Uh, and it has particular persons as his, as his object. God foreknew you. God was thinking before the creation of the world about the people that he would create and those whom he would redeem. So God has known you before your life began, before the creation of the world, and as your life began in the womb and you will be known by God forever. Again, David says, in your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me. God knows the end of your life and beyond. You will never be forgotten. Uh, My grandma is an amazing and wonderful woman. She's been living with my parents since I was in college. And in 2012, she was diagnosed with dementia. And just after that diagnosis, when her, her mind was still with her, she, um, she was deeply afraid, afraid of forgetting, afraid of losing all her memories, afraid of being forgotten. She made my mom promise her that they would never put her in a, in a nursing home. She didn't want to be forgotten and uh, out of people's minds. She had a deep fear of being forgotten. You know, um, Timothy Swinton wrote a book called uh, About Dementia with the subtitle Living in the Memories of God. And he says there that personal identity, who we are, it doesn't doesn't reside in our memories, uh, but in being known and loved by God. And then he says this, if our identity is held in and by the memory of God, then we can be certain that dementia does not destroy us now or in the future. We are not what we remember. Rather, we are remembered. Our identity is safe in the memory of God. And so the deep fear of forgetting is overcome by the deeper promise of being remembered. He will not forget you. Uh, God is the God of old age. just He is the God of all life. Uh, Listen to what God says in Isaiah 46. He, God says, listen to me. I have upheld you since you were conceived and carried you since your birth. Even to your old age and gray hairs, I am he. I am he who will sustain you. I have made you and I will carry you. I will sustain you and I will rescue you. Being known by God means being known inside out, everywhere, and it means being known for all time. And then in verses 17 through 24, uh, the psalmist responds to being known. And so we see here what our response to being known should be. And David responds first with comfort. In verses 17 through 18, he says, how precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. If I would count them, they are more than the sand. I awake and I am still with you. Now, again, why is God's knowledge of David comforting to him? Well, it's because the one who knows him, loves him. Uh, The sum of God's thoughts about you are vast. You are not out of sight, out of mind with God. You are in his sight and on his mind. One translation of this verse reads, how, how precious are your thoughts about me. And I think that idea gets gets the sense right. Uh, The reason God's knowledge is precious to David is because God is thinking about him. God is attentive to and caring for him. I know some of you have a hard time believing this. You may feel very insecure about yourself. You feel like you're constantly trying to prove yourself. Maybe you feel ashamed of who you are, feel ashamed of what you've become or what you've failed to become. But if you are in Christ, then you are one of God's dearly beloved children. Forgiveness for all failures, inseparably joined to the family of God. God's thoughts about you should be precious to you too. He has set his love on you. David is comforted by God's thoughts about him. But then second, David responds to God's knowledge with a warning. Uh, Look at the disturbing language in verses 19 through 24. Uh, David says, "O oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. O men of blood, depart from me. They speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not load those who rise up against you? I hate them with complete hatred. I count them my enemies. Now, this really challenges our thinking, doesn't it? Uh, anyone who knows anything about the teaching of Jesus knows that Jesus says, love your enemies and pray for them. Well, notice here that David is not talking about his own enemies, his own personal enemies. Rather, he's talking about those who have made themselves enemies of God. He's talking about God's enemies. These men are men, wicked men of blood. They're, they're murderers, he says. They speak against you. They take your name in vain. They hate you. They rise up against you. These are not, first of all, David's enemies. These are God's enemies. They are the murderers who are unrepentant. They are the vicious and and unrelenting. And David declares that his sympathies are with God. And isn't that right? You know, in in a court of law, if someone is proven guilty beyond reasonable doubt, you want the judge or jury to sympathize, uh, not with the condemned, the, 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 the one who's been convicted, you want the judge and jury to sympathize with justice. And likewise, when the wicked stand justly condemned by God and his justice, our our sympathies should lie with God, who is the offended, uh, not with the wicked who are condemned. David is simply declaring this affirmation of divine justice. But then one other question may arise about these verses, and that is, why does David say this here? What does this condemning prayer have to do with God knowing those who are his? And I think the answer is something like this. God knows those who are his own, but God also knows knows those who have rebelled against him and they will face God's judgment. And so God's internal, eternal, everywhere present knowledge is a comfort to his children, but it is a great threat to those who oppose him. And so these words serve as a warning about the knowledge of God to those who oppose God. So there is comfort and there is warning. And then we see a third response to being known by God as David concludes this psalm. And this is the response of invitation. In the final lines of this psalm, David invites God's knowledge. You see this in verse 23. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. The search me prayer. David invites God to search him. He seeks out God's assessment of him. And not only that, but he wants to be changed. If there's some grievous way found in him, he wants to turn away from it. And then he wants for God to lead him in the everlasting way, the way of righteousness and truth. So the search me prayer is really a a change me prayer. Search me and change me. This is how God knowing us shapes our identity. Because God knows who we are, uh, he can show us the way to righteousness. He can tell us who we are to become. We are known by God and his knowledge of us shapes our identity. But how exactly does God knowing us shape our identity? Well, you know how the words of someone that you really love and respect when, when they know you well and they, they love you, the, the words that they speak, speak to you can be powerful. They can shape your identity. Uh, you can probably think of words that someone has spoken to you that have had uh, a powerful effect on how you think about yourself. Identity is not something that's merely uh, created in in isolated self-introspection as we look deep inside ourselves to discover who we are, but it's something uh, that arises out of uh, and within relationships, most fundamentally in our relationship with God, and then secondarily in our relationship with other people. Identity is not so much constructed as it is something that's given to us. God gives us our identity. Our creator shows us who we are to be. So we must train our ears to listen to God's words about us, to form our sense of identity based above all else on the word of God, here is what God's word says about us. God's word says that we have dignity, that we are valuable because we've been created in the image of God. We have rational capacities that reflect God's thoughts. We have the capacity to love that reflects God's love. We have skills and wiring and personality. You have been fearfully and wonderfully made, reflecting the glory and majesty of the God who created you. Created you. And though we have been fearfully and wonderfully made, uh, we are corrupted. We are broken. Each and every one of us has inside of us the dark stain of sin that is ineradicable. We are broken and, and, and vitiated by uh, the, the sin, the, the rebellion against God that is so deep-seated in us and overflows in all kinds of uh, wicked actions that harm ourselves and harm other people. And so though we bear the image of God, we are broken and we have marred that image in us. However, it's not been forever and completely and unrecoverably lost. But God has determined to redeem his children. He sent Jesus Christ to win back a people for himself. And on the cross, Jesus died that we might have forgiveness. And so we are valuable. And we are broken, but we can be forgiven through Jesus Christ so that our identity is forever freed from being condemned by the sin that we bear with us. Now we're forgiven, we're liberated, we're redeemed, and we have the hope of eternal life with the God who created us and all the joy that is to be found in him. We're valuable, we're broken, we're forgiven. And then God tells us that we are in process. That we are being sanctified, transformed, uh, one degree, just bit by bit, a little bit at a time, into the likeness of Christ, to look like our Father. This is what God's Spirit does within us. The Holy Spirit is present with us, bringing about what Paul calls the fruit of the Spirit. All all the fruits, the good things that God brings about in us. Someone said it's the Spirit who beautifies us. He makes us look like God. And that is a process that is unfolding in the life of the Christian as we continually say, Show me if there is any uh, grievous way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. You see, this, this is how God's knowledge of us shapes us. We listen to the story of humanity that the Bible tells and we agree with God's assessment of us. We confess our sin and then he forgives us and then he makes us more like Christ. And so we agree with him and say, take me where you want me to go. Make me who you want me to be. And God's knowledge of us shapes our identity, who we are to become To be known by God is not only to be known for who we are, but to be changed into what he wants us to be. And this is what David seeks in the end of this psalm in response to the wonderful uh, truth that God knows him uh, inside out and everywhere and all the time. And this is the prayer that we conclude with, that God would search us and know us, try us to see if there's any grievous way in us and lead us in the way everlasting. Let's pray toward that end now. Father, we are grateful um, for what you reveal to us about yourself in this psalm. We are deeply grateful that you are um, always present with us, that your knowledge of us extends to the very core of our person, that will never be forsaken, but you always know us. These are truths that we uh, rehearse, truths that we remind ourselves of so that uh, we might have a constant awareness of your presence, so that we might agree with your assessment of us. And so we respond just as David does and ask you to search us, try us, see if there is any grievous way in us and lead us in the way everlasting. Bring to your people the joy uh, that should attend these thoughts. Bring to us the holiness that should result uh, from thinking about these things. We pray this, that you might be glorified in and through your church for your own glory, in Christ's name, amen.